You're listening to Podnosis, the pulse of the healthcare industry. I'm Teresa Carey. By 2023, JAMA reported that colorectal cancer will be the number one cancer killer for those between 20 and 49. That is a priority to make sure that that statistic does not come to fruition. You just heard from Angie Davis, president of the nonprofit Fight Colorectal Cancer. Stay with us. We'll hear more from her soon. And later, what we've all been waiting for. I'll announce the winner of Fierce Madness. But before we get to that, let's hear from our first guest. State Medicaid programs are launching into a massive undertaking of redetermining the eligibility of all beneficiaries. It started on April 1st, and states have one year to complete the process. But it could lead to thousands losing health insurance coverage if not done properly. The end of the continuous coverage requirement for Medicaid beneficiaries brings with it major questions over the future of the program, which could also face scrutiny from Republicans in Congress who have long wanted to cut its funding. Health Affairs Editor-in-Chief Alan Weil talked with Fierce's Robert King about the start of Medicaid redeterminations and the long-term outlook for the misunderstood program. Here they are. Thanks so much for uh, joining us on this episode of Podnosis, Alan. Thank you, Robert. It's a pleasure to be here. Great. So uh, one of the big, probably the biggest issue uh, facing the Medicaid program right now is, of course, the end of the continuous coverage requirement uh, and the start of Medicaid eligibility redeterminations. Could you tell me a little bit about uh, if you've seen any variations among states on how they are handling uh, this massive uh, undertaking? I know that there's, there could, you know, Medicaid is a, a state run program, and I know that there could potentially be some changes in how, you know, a state may, uh, you know, approach the redetermination process. We're facing the potential loss of coverage, according to the federal government, of as many as 15 million people. Uh, the number of uninsured now is at an all-time low, and a big part of that is people have come on to Medicaid, and then they have not lost it because during the public health emergency, states, in order to get extra federal funds, had to agree to not terminate people. Uh, as with everything Medicaid, there is variation across states. I think it's fair to say that everyone's looking at this. In fact, the federal government requires states to have a plan. So, of course, every state is looking at it. Uh, some of the differences really are rooted in the historical differences in how states view the Medicaid program. You know, the origins of the program are in welfare. Uh, eligibility for Medicaid was tied to receiving cash assistance. And there are still many states where that residue uh, remains and makes Medicaid sort of seen with disfavor, that the goal is to get people off the program. The notion that if they're receiving Medicaid, that they're, they're on welfare and we don't want people to be on welfare. I'd say the majority of states at this point do understand that Medicaid is an important form of supporting lower and lower middle income people. Most states are going to go through, I think, as good efforts as they can to find those who no longer meet Medicaid eligibility requirements, other sources of coverage, particularly subsidies on the 
Affordable Care Act uh, insurance exchanges uh, or potentially other categories of eligibility. Um, but there are states that uh, either aren't going to make as great an effort or don't uh, feel that they have the resources to make as great an effort. And in those states, I think it's pretty likely that as people lose coverage, uh, they will become uninsured. You, you've studied uh, the Medicaid program for some time, and you've been in this space uh, for for a while. Um, you can I, go ahead and say decades. I, <laughs> I, I, I won't be offended. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you know, there's been a lot. Like you, you don't, you touched on this a little bit in your answer. But could you tell me a little bit more about how Medicaid's perception has evolved amongst the public? I think we've seen a very gradual but consistent evolution among uh, the public in their view of Medicaid. And the proof of that really is that when the Republicans took the majority in Congress and promised to repeal the Affordable Care Act, which is something they had been talking about for literally years, um, they found themselves unable to and Probably the biggest barrier was that repealing the Affordable Care Act also involved significantly scaling back the Medicaid program. So I think in the old days, you know, like many things, you talk about Medicaid enrollees as them, like welfare recipients, they're them. Those are those people. And now it's it's us. It's you. It's your neighbors and your family members. Um I don't want to say it's, uh, you know, these things don't shift completely from one side to another. And it's not that the feelings are totally positive or totally negative, but there's no question there's been an evolution in people's understanding. I also think it's tied to welfare reform, which of course is now decades ago. But before welfare reform, the only way to get Medicaid with a few small exceptions was to be receiving welfare benefits, cash assistance. Uh, with welfare reform, we broke that link. And again, it became sort of more of a work support. Instead of this being a benefit that you get when you're getting welfare, it really did change the language around Medicaid when we had uh, welfare reform. What do you think the program is going to look like, you know, five years or so, or even a couple years down the line? Where do you see the Medicaid program on the other side of this process? Well, the obvious answer is it's going to be smaller. As you do this, people are going to lose coverage, and it's going to be a smaller program. It's still going to be very large. And remember, uh, you know, the, the, the program covers a broad diversity of people with very different healthcare needs. The most likely to lose coverage through the redetermination process are low-income folks uh, disproportionately uh, English not as their first language, disproportionately low income so that they they are maybe less have less stable housing. They're more likely to move and more likely to be lost by the system, less likely to get mail that might be sent to an address where they don't live anymore, less likely to have a community organization supporting them in redetermination because they're less connected to the community. And actually, those are not the most expensive people in the Medicaid program. If you look where the Medicaid dollars go, it's disproportionately to people with disabilities and, and frail elders. And those folks are much less likely to lose coverage in these processes because uh, I don't want to mean, say none will, but because their, their circumstances tend to be more stable. So it will be a somewhat smaller program, but I don't think it will be 
qualitatively different solely because we're redetermining eligibility. I actually think the bigger implication is for the health system as a whole, because if we've gotten kind of used to having uh, all-time record low numbers of people without health insurance, the shocks to the health system, I think, are going to be quite large, and they're going to be particularly large in the just, uh, you know, declining, but still about a dozen states that have not expanded Medicaid, because there you're going to have people losing coverage and and your providers are going to face a huge loss of revenue associated with having a, a, a large growth in the number of uninsured. Um, so that that will I, potentially change some of the political dynamics of, of uh, Medicaid because providers are potentially a strong voice for Medicaid expansion. And as this as the enrollment numbers go down, the pressure on them uh, to advocate for Medicaid expansion will go up. So that's a perfect segue into my next question. I covered the Obamacare repeal fights uh, in 2017, which focused a lot, like you said, on on Medicaid and changes to Medicaid, either for a uh, changing funding to a block grant or a per capita cap. Republicans are, of course, in favor of these reforms and Democrats are, are vehemently opposed, uh, you know, taken into, taken, taking into account these kind of stark ideological differences, uh, is there still, you think, some chances for reform, uh, you know, in, on the national level for the Medicaid program? Well, let's go back to your, uh, these concepts of block grant and per capita cap, which because they aren't front and center right now, probably are worth a moment exploring what they mean. So, of course, uh, Medicaid financing is joint between the federal government and the states with the share paid by the federal government higher for lower income states and 50% for higher income states. Um, A block grant would take what the federal government provides the states instead of matching it on a 50, 60, 70% share, just saying, here's your money, do your best with it. But in order to generate savings, it would presumably grow more slowly than what we expect it to grow now. Per capita caps came out of the Democrats trying to defend against block grants by saying, well, don't cap the total number of dollars, just limit the number of dollars per person. So if in, at least if enrollment goes up, you get more money. But if your costs go up, you know, maybe that that's, falls to the state. Um, I don't think Democrats ever really liked per capita caps, but they saw it as better than block grants. Um, I don't see anything closing the partisan divide between these kinds of approaches. They've been around. I worked on it when Newt Gingrich was proposing block grants and when President Clinton, that goes back a ways, vetoed welfare reform because the original welfare reform legislation converted Medicaid into a block grant. He said no, vetoed it, and Congress came back and passed a a welfare reform without the Medicaid provisions. Um, So these divisions of whether basically states should be given a limited pot of money uh, and do the best they can with it, or whether lower and middle income people, uh, if they should receive a benefit, regardless of what it costs, has has been more the, the democratic approach. I don't know how you uh, compromise between those two visions of what the program is. Uh, we'll see some of this play out in the politics of the uh, the debt 
ceiling. And, you know, the, the statement now by the Republican Party is that they won't agree to it unless they're constraints in spending. Uh, the, the nature of those are to be determined. Uh, President Biden made a lot of hay out of saying at the State of the Union and getting his Republican colleagues to agree they wouldn't touch Medicare or Social Security. You take those off the table and the next big item on there is Medicaid. Uh, and if you're going to do anything to reduce costs in Medicaid, you probably have to change the structure. You can't just pull money out of it. So um, this is an ideological division about the nature of the program, what it tries to accomplish, and who should bear the cost. That that uh, uh, I, first first of all, it's been around for a long time, and second of all, I I don't think there's much of a. Uh, I, I think it's hard to visualize what what a compromise is on those two very different uh, visions. Yeah. So uh, basically, for everyone out there, stay tuned uh, and be ready to potentially learn a lot more about uh, block grants. <laughs> You know, again, uh, as we see kind of what happens, uh, of course, that debt ceiling showdown will uh, kind of occur, I think, by later this summer and spring. So, uh, but Alan, that was uh, what I had for today. Thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. It was my pleasure being on. Thanks for having me. That was Alan Weil and Robert King. After a month of voting and narrowing the pool down to the best of the best, we finally have a winner for our Fierce Madness competition. And the winner is, drum roll please, Elidade's CEO, Farzad Mostashari. Fierce's Paige Minimeyer spoke with Mostashari about the win. You can find her coverage in the show notes. But she reported that Allidade supports physician groups in transitioning to value-based care. In the past nine years, it has averted nearly 100,000 hospitalizations, reduced cost of care by an average of 6%, and drove $1 billion in funding to community primary care practices. And apparently, Farzad Mostashari has a Twitter following, who used the hashtag, InFarzardWeTrust. So that's pretty neat. You can't argue with Twitter. Colorectal cancer is the second leading cause of cancer deaths in the country, and early onset cases are rising. Racial disparities also persist. Black Americans are 20% more likely to be diagnosed with the disease and 40% more likely to die from it compared to most other ethnic groups. They also wait longer for treatment. More than half of all cases could be prevented with screening and modified behavior changes, like a better diet and more exercise. Yet many Americans do not seek screening until it's too late. According to one analysis, nationwide colonoscopy screenings and biopsies fell 90% during the height of the pandemic. Anastasia Gladkovskia sat down with Angie Davis, president of the nonprofit Fight Colorectal Cancer to talk about what stakeholders can do to tackle this disease. Here they are. Hi, Angie. It's great to meet you. Thank you for being here. Nice to meet you as well. Really excited to be here and appreciate the invitation. Well, I, I wanted to start with maybe just one broad question, and I realize it might be difficult to answer succinctly, but like when you're thinking about the fight for progress on colorectal cancer, what is like the biggest impediment to progress or maybe the biggest barrier that that's holding back improvement in this area or maybe a couple 
I think that's a great question. So I'll try to, to tackle it and, and break it down. I think that increased colorectal cancer screening is one piece of the puzzle. And then in addition to increasing colorectal cancer screening, accessing treatment once you've been diagnosed with colorectal cancer. In addition to that, as you start breaking it down, how do we make sure everyone has access to screening and treatment? Those are some initial thoughts that, that kind of come to mind when I think about how do we tackle colorectal cancer? How do we make progress as it relates to reducing the mortality to this disease? Mm-hmm. Maybe we can dive into prevention to start. And maybe you think about screening as part of prevention. But can you talk about what we know in terms of behavior that can contribute to like meaningfully reducing risk of colorectal cancer? You know, I always struggle with this because lifestyle does come into play. Um, family history comes into play. I hate to to put it on the patient to say you could have done this or you should have done this. But there are risk factors to colorectal cancer, like excessive drinking, obesity, smoking, you know, the normal things that you want to do to prevent cancer in general apply to colorectal cancer. One thing from a lifestyle standpoint, I think unique to colorectal cancer is the idea of stigma. So talking to your family about having a family history of colorectal cancer, talking about signs and symptoms, like do you have you know, irregular bowel movements? Are you constipated all the time? Do you see blood in your stool? Those are some things that uh, I think should help us generally as a population improve opportunities to prevent colorectal cancer is if we could even just talk about it and be more open about it. I think I went to a third grade class to talk about colorectal cancer and their favorite topic was poop. So when I said poop and fart, I got like major rounds of applause. But if I go to, you know, dinner with friends, everyone sort of whispers like, oh, I've been constipated for the Mm. last two weeks. But maybe you should be talking about that and talk to your primary care provider or your your friends about being constipated because it could be a sign of a larger issue. Interesting. So I guess among adults, at least, this is kind of a taboo or like stigmatized problem. And if you start thinking about, you know, other populations, um, African Americans, Latinos, Asian Americans, there are cultural nuances to talking about your poop and your um, rectum and all those things Like we just sort of have to sensitize ourselves. It's a body part that everyone has. One thing that, and Komodo um, worked with us on this, and I think it's an alarming um, statistic, is what they saw as early onset, those under 50 were being diagnosed in emergency rooms. And so that goes back to the idea of stigma. So those who are younger, who are not part of that normal screening age, um, talking about their signs and symptoms, talking about their bowel habits, and not waiting until it's an emergent situation, they're going to the urgent care or emergency room, and then being diagnosed with colorectal cancer. And what do we know about the way that these physicians communicate with their patients about the importance of like early detection, early screening? Um, Is it like totally ubiquitous and it's the standard to recommend it to everyone or is still, are there challenges related to that? No, I think there's still challenges. Um, We're still working really hard as an organization, as a community to remind healthcare providers to bring up this conversation at 45. So the screening age was at 50 and now it dropped to 45, but reminding them it is 45 um, and to bring it up. So I think there's still work to be done there. One thing I would say is that it's about options. So one thing we push hard is that um, 
all our healthcare providers, nurses, you know, the front desk person scheduling you um, to your phlebotomist. I mean, it's just reminding people that they have options for colorectal cancer. It doesn't have to be a colonoscopy. It can be a non-invasive screening test. So if cost is an issue, if time is an issue, if transportation is an issue, if insurance cover is it, coverage is an issue, there are lower cost options that are effective um, that people have have available to them. Mm-hmm. Okay, great to know. And then when it comes to treatment, which is sort of the last piece of this that I think about, um, can you talk about what access to care or to specialists looks like? Um, you know, I'm thinking about especially for marginalized communities. I think access to care in, in community practices is hard. Um, 80% of care is still happening in communities and not in academic centers. And, you know, I'll just share, you know, a personal experience. I was diagnosed with cancer during COVID um, or right at the beginning of COVID. And I ended up having, and mind you, I work in, in oncology and I've been in advocacy for over two decades and I had to drive four hours to treatment. Um, so I think that when we talk about access to care, access to specialists is still a very relevant issue. Um, and when you talk about rural communities after COVID, you know, there still is a backlog, both on the prevention side and on the treatment side. Yeah, for sure. Can you talk about that Komodo Health Partnership? Um, we've referred to it a couple times in conversation already. For those that aren't familiar, Komodo Health is a um, health data analytics giant um, and collects data on uh, hundreds of millions of um, Americans and their patient journeys. Can you talk about how you came to um, that partnership and, and just figuring out who you even want to work with to collect? Um, data. So I saw the first presentation on claims data um, five years ago at ASCO, and it felt really far away. Like as a nonprofit organization with a very small staff, our backgrounds are in public health, um, just didn't feel like that was accessible. And so we really picked a partner that would work with us on trying to synthesize the data. And I think that is the key our expertise is the patient journey. We know what's happening, but we really need to sit down with a partner and say, how do we look at the data? How do we manage the data? How do we, how can we be, um, I guess, up to speed on what is possible? Because I think that was the the challenge we had as an organization is what is the art of the possible? Yeah, I, I know others in healthcare share your excitement about data. And as a reporter, so do I, um, especially when it leads to improved um, outcomes or at least actionable um, progress. Can you maybe give an example or two of um, this in practice, a, a time when you proposed or showed data to a policymaker or to a healthcare stakeholder like a hospital and um, were met with a positive response that actually resulted in something meaningful? So, you know, time to follow up colonoscopy. Um, so we were working with CMS on the coverage for follow-up colonoscopy. Uh, so you had a non-invasive screening test followed by colonoscopy. And there was a gap there where they said the initial test was a preventative service and the follow-up colonoscopy was diagnostic. Looking at the data, looking at our partners, working with the CDC, working with um, professional associations and said, let's like pull this information together and meet with CMS and show them that it's no longer 
where you have a non-invasive screening test and that you check the box, they've been screened. It's actually a two-step process. And so we were able to use the data that we pulled to show CMS, this is what's happening. It's becoming a diagnostic. The patient is then getting a bill and it's considered a surprise bill at that point. Um, And we were able this last summer to be able to change that piece of policy and coverage with CMS so that that follow-up colonoscopy is considered a screening colonoscopy. And so the coverage then covers the entire process for a patient. That was incredibly important to us. And I think it was that nice marriage between a patient experience and the data together to kind of create a powerful story to change Mm -hmm. policy. Looking ahead to 2023 and beyond, what are your biggest takeaways when you think about what some of the biggest priorities for healthcare stakeholders should be when it comes to meaningfully reducing colorectal cancer rates? By 2023, JAMA reported that colorectal cancer will be the number one cancer killer for those between 20 and 49. So for us as an organization, that is a priority to make sure that that statistic does not come to fruition. And so as an organization, that's what we've been very focused on. Uh, We're working with about 40 organizations to develop a report to identify across the similar buckets that you created for this conversation, what are the KPIs that we need to be monitoring so that we can tackle that future 2023 state and not have colorectal cancer be the number one cancer killer. Well, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. It's been great getting to to talk about something that, that we're extremely passionate about. And maybe we've got a few extra champions here after this. That was Angie Davis and Anastasia Gladkovskia. Thank you for listening to Podnosis. I'm Teresa Carey. Our sound engineer is Caleb Hodson. You can find more news and stories at FierceHealthcare.com. So tune in Wednesday morning to Podnosis where healthcare is our beat.